Would you take out the uh, handout sheet in your bulletin and grab a Bible? If you don't have a Bible, we will bring one right to where you're sitting. Just raise your hand and we'll make sure that you get one. Sandy and Rick and Terry and Flavius and old crew is going to be handing them out to you this morning. So keep your hand up. I'll give you the page number on how to get there. It just makes it a lot easier to follow along. And on your handout sheet, you'll notice that we're launching a brand new series here at the church on the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament before the time between the Testaments and then we hit the New Testament where we began to learn about Jesus. And it's a very, very significant book. It's an incredible series. And because I have the spiritual gift of blabber, I can take a four-chapter book into a five-part series. So we're going to have a five-part series, even though it's only four chapters, and in Hebrew it's only three. So in Hebrew, I'm actually long-winded. All right, fantastic. Moving on. Look at the quote at the top of your page, and we will begin. Today's lesson is entitled, The Aroma of Arrogance in Community. It's a quote by Gary Thomas in a book called Not the End But the Road, and he said this, If you've attempted to build a spiritual life from the outside in, bypassing humility, you probably feel tired, disillusioned, frustrated, or just plain lifeless. The surest road to humility is a constant remembrance of God. When we don't take time to dwell on the power, beauty, holiness, awesomeness, and majesty of God, humility becomes a stranger, and pride becomes a raging force. Fill in the blank there in front of you is this. When you call all the shots, God seems strangely silent. When you call all the shots, God seems strangely silent. You know, on this sabbatical, not being forced to be here and work for God, I began to enter into the world that you live in, which is a world where everything else vies for your attention and then you go to church. And what I found is, is that for me, it was so easy to allow the world to begin to revolve around me. It didn't take any time at all for me to begin to think thoughts only about me. I didn't have other other things that forced me to think about the bigger picture or forced me to think about what God was doing. I began to get extremely selfish. And when you get selfish and begin to think about your rights, you get prideful. And when you get prideful, you begin to look differently at God. Begin to realize the incredible struggle that all of us face every day. And just trying to remember that God needs to be on the throne of our lives, not ourselves. It's not about us. Right? You know, I, I look at this, this book and it's so much about getting back to seeing God rightly. Giving Him the respect that He deserves. Honoring Him in a proper way. Israel had slid to a place where they no longer saw God as a good guy and they stopped worshiping rightly. And I don't know how many of us today are in that place, but on sabbatical, I found that place. It's really easy to get there. It just seems so hard to get out. What you think about God is the single most important thing. Is he your Lord? Is he your savior? Is he your master? Is he king? Or are you king? If you are king, then you will never see the supernatural, the miraculous. You'll never see God move because you're not looking his direction. You're looking at yourself. That will leave you a listless, lifeless joke 
of a Christian life. And I found that it's so easy to sit on the fence, but the only problem with sitting on the fence with the world on one side, God on the other, is that even though you have the best vantage point, and even though you can look and see everything and feel like you're in control, you engage with neither. The Bible says in Revelation that God would rather have you be hot or cold. Just don't be lukewarm. Don't be a fence sitter. You want to walk in the world? Walk in the world. Quit screwing around. Quit looking at it. Thinking it looks nice, dabbling in it, but never really engaging because then you don't see the full consequence of your actions and you'll continue to play the game. You want to go God's side? Jump in. Go in with both feet, but don't dabble with it. Don't put it as an add-on in your life. Don't put it as a little weekend activity. You jump one side of the fence to the other, but you don't sit there. And yet I find myself sitting there and I believe that God is displeased. Malachi is the twelfth of the twelve minor prophets. Always listed twelve. They're known as the minor prophets because of the size of the book. These are very small. This one's only four chapters. The major prophets are guys that write really, really long. Okay? That's Jeremiah and Isaiah and those kind of guys. The minor prophets write small, and you say, well, small book should mean small importance. No, if I wrote you a note that says, I'm going to kill you, that's not long. But it's super important. Wouldn't you agree? The size of the book is not the concern. The concern is what's inside that book. And we are about to open up someone else's mail. This is a letter personally from God to Israel in a very specific time in history. We must understand that history in order to understand what it means. Then we can apply pieces of it to our lives. Are we all going to feel that this series applies to our life? Am I trying to talk about judgment and correction because I feel like we're doing terrible as a church? No, not at all. I feel that there's wonderful hearts here. I feel that there's incredible hearts of worship here. But some of us, like myself, in areas of our life, we've slipped. We've compromised. And we took the easy route. And we need a little correction from Dad. And that's what's got to come through to us. Almost always when God speaks a message of judgment, He speaks hope. Hope to his children. God will never correct his children without this idea of restoration. God's goal is not to tear you down. God's goal is to build you up. But he will not sit back and allow you to think he's your genie. He will make sure that he has reestablished his king. And that may mean a lot of spankings. And he's about to bring a big wall up on Israel here. I think it's a perfect transition out of the book of Luke. <clears throat> the two pastors led you through the book of Luke as I was gone, this eight-part series. And Luke talks a lot about Jesus, about how Jesus is amazing. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our Master, but He's a healer. He's the one that can take care of your needs. He's the one who, on the cross, died for your sins. And it talks so much about the love that Christ has for us. Unfortunately, when you get done with that, you can almost think that it's really about you. This book is a compliment to the, say, hold on a second, you're not God. Are we all clear on that? Great. That's the point. But Israel had slipped into such major decline. And if you really think about it, some argue that maybe the book of Joel was written later, but most scholars believe this is the last prophet that spoke before the time between the Testaments, hundreds of years of silence. 
And the next prophet to show up was a man called John the Baptist. And he was saying, the Messiah is here. Can you imagine a book of that importance? That's what we're about to study. Would you open up to Malachi? Chapter 1, verse 1, page 675 in the Bibles that were handed to you. Last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. Malachi, chapter 1, verse 1, page 675. I'm just going to read the first two verses and we'll pray for this morning. We're just going to cover the first chapter today. Then we'll wrap it up. I will go long because that's what I do. Here we go. I get really hyper when I get back and I just keep talking and I won't shut up. Here we go. Malachi chapter one, verse one, page 675 it starts like this. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, that this morning we could either allow the distractions of our lives or the demands upon us to steal from us this special time with you, or we can remain attuned to your voice. I ask, Lord, that you would give us the strength and the focus to hear what you want to say to us, that you would keep the enemy bound and captive, that he would not be able to disrupt what is going on. But, Father, that we would be changed people when we leave this room. In Jesus' name, amen. This book begins with a controversial word. Controversial in the sense that a bunch of biblical scholars that have nothing better to do argue about it. It's the word in Hebrew, masa. Now, masa in our Bible is translated an oracle. Do you see that in the NIV? Well, it's one word in Hebrew, and it means to lift up a burden. Well, the argument is, should we focus on the lifting up or focus on the burden? Because... If the word just means burden, the book starts out with, and now I have bad news. That's how it starts. It starts out with, and I've got a burden. All right, well, that puts a pretty ominous tone on the whole book. Or do we focus on the fact of the lifting up, meaning, and now a man has going to lift up a word for you to look at. So scholars debate on that. Does it really matter? Not really, but every time the words are put together in this fashion in Scripture, a prophecy is about to hit. A prophecy of judgment, and it's very serious. So, do we need the ominous tone to remain? Yes, we do. This is not going to be good news, whatever is about to come next. An oracle, the word of the Lord. Do you see in your Bible that it's capital L-O-R-D? Do you see that? They're all capitalized. Well, why does the NIV do that? Because that is the word in Hebrew, Yahweh. That is the personal name of God. He told Moses that his name was Yahweh, and he told him what that name means. It's not just any name. If he wanted to do a general name for God, it would have been Elohim in Hebrew, but it's not. It's Yahweh. He's trying to make a point. He's trying to make a point that he is the specific personal God of Israel, and that he has spoken to them in a very specific and personal way. And then he wants to point out their covenant relationship. So let me ask you this. What is God like? What is God's nature? Someone was to ask you, so what's God like? You're a Christian. Tell me, what's God like? What are you going to say? Because here's what I think will be interesting. It will most likely be the last book you read. So let me ask you this. Something bad happens to your life. You find out that you're diagnosed with cancer. Now what? Whose God is going to respond to your need? Is it going to be Max Lucado's God? 
Was it going to be John MacArthur's God? They seem to be pretty different. Is it, is it John Piper's God? Or is it Chuck Swindoll's God? Whose God is going to respond to your situation? What is God like? Let me explain something to you. If you only hear what God is like through other people, you're never going to know Him for yourself. And He will not respond to your personal situation in the manner that you'll expect. Because Max Lucado was writing for a specific context at a specific time. Unless you got Max on a chain following you around to respond to your current situation, you better be careful. All those men are good men, men with good hearts, godly men from what I know, incredible teachers, but they are not Scripture. This is Scripture. You know God for yourself by reading this. You hang out at Bridgeway too long. You listen to me too much and don't get back in Scripture. I'm going to tell you what God's like, and it's not sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. You read it for yourself. You know what God's like. Does he ever describe himself? Yes, he does. Would you keep your finger there and turn with me back to Exodus chapter 33, page 64 in the Bibles that you were handed, second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We need to find Exodus 33, page 64. Praise the Lord that he told us exactly what he's like. And he said, when I use the term Yahweh, I want you to understand what I'm going to define. I want you to know what I'm like, because you will allow your circumstance to dictate who you think God is. If he hasn't done anything for you lately, you make him a bad guy. If he just helped you out, you make him a good guy. Well, what is he? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? It better not change on your whim. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Moses had this very question for him. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord Yahweh said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my what? My name. A name in the Bible speaks of your character. It speaks about who you are. It speaks about what you're all about, not just a title. I will proclaim my name Yahweh in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Go to chapter 34, verse 5. Chapter 34, verse 5. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. What is God like? There you have it. That's his autobiography. You want to know what I'm like? I'm loving and compassionate and gracious. But lest you think you are in control, I do not leave sin unpunished. I am a just, holy, and righteous God, he would say. If your circumstance tells you that God is different than that, 
your eyes are blinded and you are not seeing correctly. He is a loving God. He is a forgiving God. But He's a righteous God. Do not err on either side. Is He personal? Yes. Is He your slave? No. Go back to Malachi. An oracle. The word of Yahweh. To Israel. Remember, we're opening their mail. It's to them. You know how all of us like to make the Bible apply to all of us? And we scripture dive for our devotions in the morning. You grab your Bible and you just go, and Lord, what do you have for me today? Ooh, I don't like that one. And Lord, what do you have for me today? Oh, that one has Rice Krispies on it. Uh, oh, I see. Here we go. Surely then you count my steps. You don't keep track of my sin. Praise the Lord. Amen. That's a good one for this morning. Let's go. Okay. No, you can't do that. You're not reading it in context. Stop messing around with scripture. Read it accurately. Then it will minister to your situation. In this same way, specific to Israel in a certain time frame. And we need to know what that time frame is. But one more word. It says through Malachi. Ah, the other great debate of Malachi amongst the boring scholars. Is Malachi a title or a name? It means my messenger. So, as a matter of fact, an ancient Jewish translation of Scripture actually adds in, this is the words of my messenger, Ezra the scribe. So it says there's no guy named Malachi at all. It was Ezra, who has another book in here, that wrote this book. So is that true? Well, there's a lot of arguments on either side, and I did a lot of research on this. Well, you know what? I don't know. There you go. There's your answer. I have no idea, but most likely there's a guy really named Malachi and he really did an oracle for God. He really spoke on God's behalf, but does it matter who he is or the message that God had? The message God had, so I think that's a little bit more important. But when he spoke, why he spoke, and how he spoke is extremely significant, so welcome to your history lesson. You ready to go? How many of you were here during the Nehemiah series? Raise your hand. All right, the majority of you. The rest of you, we're going back there. We're going to go to the time of Nehemiah. So let me give you a brief history. Remember, time, as I tell you, when I say 900 B.C., it counts down. Then when you hit zero, it counts back up. All right, so if I say 900 B.C. and 800, 800 is closer to us than 900. We all on that? Sometimes we forget this stuff, so picture a V. King David, Saul, and Solomon, the big dogs. You remember David and Goliath, King David, the greatest king of Israel. That was known as the monarchy. King David's son Solomon took over the throne, and he kind of blew it. After him, it went into a civil war, and the 12 tribes of Israel broke out into two factions. They had their own kings. They had their own prophets. So when you're reading the Old Testament, you're going, where am I at? Who's doing what? You've got to watch it very carefully. The top ten tribes were known as Israel. They were the north. The bottom two tribes were known as Judah or the south. That broke in 900 B.C. In 722 B.C., the north was invaded and taken over by the Assyrian Empire. They took them into captivity and they were wiped off the face of the earth with only a few remaining. And Assyria took over the territory. The south only remained. Then in 586 B.C., getting closer to us, 
The South was wiped out by the Babylonian Empire. These massive movements that went throughout the world. They took them away and carried them away, leaving only a few, only a remnant. The place was devastated in ruins. The walls of Jerusalem were torn down and Israel as a nation was no more. It would not be a massive nation. It would not be a recognized nation again of its own accord till 1948. Our 1948. But then a decree came down from a pagan king by the name of Cyrus of the Persian Empire that said that the Jews could go home and rebuild. And they went home in three waves. In 538 B.C., the first group of 50,000 exiled Jews came back home. Led by the governor Zerubbabel and led by his priest Joshua, they led the people back into the land and tried to rebuild the temple. Things were in ruins, but hey, they were home. During this time, the Persian Empire is warring against the Egyptian Empire and it's knocking down everything Israel tries to build. It is during this time that some of your other minor prophets spoke. Haggai, Zechariah, these men prophesied during that time. Then the second wave comes sweeping through after 80 years, and that is a man by the name of Ezra. Ezra comes through with his crew and brings in more exiles, and they restore the worship, and he starts trying to lead reform. It's during these times that Esther's story takes place that we talked about before I left. Finally, the temple is completed around 520, 515 B.C. And then the third group, the final group, shows up, and that was led by Nehemiah. Nehemiah came in about 445 B.C., began to rebuild the walls of the city, and for 12 years as governor led reform. He said, people, let's get organized we will be a nation again and began to crack the whip down on saying we're not where God wants us. We must change. No, we cannot intermix Mary between other nations. We are Israel. We must do it the way God asked. We must reinstitute the priesthood. We must bring our tithes and offerings. We must honor the Lord. And 12 years he fought that battle and things looked pretty good. So he went back to his post. He left when things were good. He stepped out and went back home because he worked for the king in Persia. Well, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And it slipped right back into debauchery. Everything he worked for fell apart. He was gone for a number of years. We don't know how long, but we know that when he got back, the kids from the marriages he told them not to have could already talk. So it must have been four, five, six years that he was gone. He shows back up and looks around and goes, I'm sorry, what am I looking at, people? Did we not work 12 years for this? What do you think you're doing? It was during the time that he was gone that Malachi spoke. Malachi's message is almost identical to Nehemiah chapter 10 and chapter 13. You'll read them at the same time, and they're firing on the exact same topics. People, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? We're completely disobeying the Lord, and He will bring judgment. Have we not learned last time? Why did God allow them to fall into captivity? Their sin. They are there for a very specific reason. Because they said no to God, and they rebelled. This is called discipline. 
Every good parent knows that title. But they didn't like it. So, we go back to the text. An oracle, the word of Yahweh through Malachi. I have loved you, said the Lord. Why did the Lord love Israel? Was it because that they were a better nation than everyone else? No. Was it because they were more populated than everyone else? No. Was it because they did all the right things? No. Why then? And this is very significant because as Christians, we seem to play this game that we can make God love us more if we're good little boys and girls. If we do our devotions and go to church, God will love us more. No. God loves you total now. And nothing you do can ever make God love you more than He does right now. Stop trying to earn God's love. He's not a dysfunctional parent. He knows what He's doing. He loves you today. You are not going to go to heaven because you did good things. You're not going to go through heaven because you jumped through the right hoops. You're not going to go to heaven because you showed up to Bridgeway. You're going to go to heaven because you fell at the feet of your king and said, yes, Lord. That's why. Well, there's a lot you can do that's good for you. But don't make any mistake that you're earning God's love. You're not. Lest Israel get cocky and arrogant for being the one shining light in the whole world. Can you imagine being the nation by which God will operate through and show the whole world what he's like? Can you imagine if that was America? It's not. That's Israel. That's why they're the chosen people. It's a lot of responsibility. But it's pretty cool. Lest they get arrogant, he put in. A small phrase for them. Would you keep your finger there and turn with me to our last cross-reference, Deuteronomy 7.6. Page 131, Old Testament again. Deuteronomy 7.6, page 131. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you hit Joshua, you went too far. Deuteronomy 7.6, page 131. God wanted to be very clear with Israel why he loved them. And he didn't want them to have any misunderstanding. He said this. Speaking to Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That means set apart for a special purpose. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. But the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. What's the answer? I love you because I love you. Leave it alone. It's not because of what you did. It's not because of who you think you are. It's because I love you. I was just doing a wedding and we were at the rehearsal dinner and I was talking with a gentleman who just had a new baby. I said, you know how you hear in the Bible about God's our father? Well, it makes a lot more sense when you become a father. And having two children, I understand that concept. 
He said, I know, this little child comes out, this like gnarly, messy little thing. And I look at it in my hands and I said, I love you. But I didn't know why. Think about it. You have no history with this child. You haven't done anything with the kid. There's no play dates that you remember. There's no memories. There's nothing attached to this child. Yet you love it more intensely and in a different fashion than your spouse. Why? I don't know. And you can spend all day long trying to hash it out. But here's the truth. You love that child with everything you have. And that's the story. God said, I love you. And you need to know I love you. I've loved you tangibly. I've taken care of you. I've watched over you. I've made sure that you're all right. I've provided for you. I have loved you, said the Lord. But you ask me, how have you loved us? There's only two reasons they should ever ask that question. Number one, they're angry at him. Or number two, they forgot. Really? This question is, what have you done for me lately? And before you start pounding Israel and saying, you guys are just stupid, I would never do that. First of all, this is kind of just like us. Let me explain the situation again. For 100 years, they've been in exile. They're under the Persian Empire. They have no real nation of their own. Even though they're rebuilding, nothing good is going on. Persia's overtaxing them to the point that they're selling their sons and daughter into slavery. They hate their lives. They can't get anything done. They're disorganized, and there is no Messiah coming up on the horizon. So you tell me whether or not they felt abandoned. When you feel abandoned by God, you can't worship. But when you know that God is near, even though your circumstances say differently, you can worship. King David worshipped the night that his son died. Do you remember that? Because his eyes weren't skewed by his circumstance. He could worship no matter what at any time. Me, when God's nice to me, I worship easy. When things don't go my way, I have a hard time with worship. Oh, I wonder why that is. Who's immature? That would be me. Here, you ask me, how have you loved us? How could they ask that? Of a God who's done so much for them. Well, have you ever heard of the curse of consistent love? The curse of consistent love is this. If you are consistent enough, it becomes the norm. And anything you do off that is seen as hate. Let me give you an example. Parents, have you ever had a teenager say, you hate me? Why? You've been so consistent in your provision and love for them that that becomes the norm. Anytime you don't give them what they want, it's viewed as hate. Ah, now you know what God has to go through. Huh? Dealing with teenagers for eternity. Fantastic. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Do we all feel bad for God? Thank you. They thought their complaint was legit. And you would assume that he would coddle them. But he says, no, 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 no. You don't get it. You ask me, how have we loved you? How have I loved you? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The answer is yes. They were twins. It goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. In the patriarch family, Abraham, the father of the Jews, had Isaac. Isaac had twin sons. Their names were Jacob and Esau. Who came first? Esau. That's why he's listed first. He came first. He came out. Jacob came out immediately after. Who was the good guy? Honestly, it was probably Esau. 
the firstborn. He was the hunter. Remember the other guy? Jacob was the pretty boy. You remember him? Little pansy guy that hung out in the tent. That was that guy. God chose to do the, the blessed lineage through Jacob, not the firstborn, like normal. And God said, I did it that way because I wanted to do it that way. He said, and the Israel would say, but we are not being blessed. He said, hold on a second. You think I'm against you? Now, let me show you what I'm against somebody, what it looks like. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, meaning Esau's people, may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You'll see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. He said, you think I'm against you? Oh, no. Let me show you what it looks like when I'm against somebody. No matter how much they try to rebuild, it ain't going to work. But is that comforting? Is it comforting? Many Christians throughout my life have tried to comfort me and say this. Lance, don't you feel good that you're chosen by God to go to heaven? Don't you feel good that you're saved? I mean, think of all the people, the thousands and millions of people going to hell. You're not one of them. I'm like... That's not comforting. Now all I can focus on is the thousands and millions of people that are going to hell, and now I'm sad. Thank you very much. It doesn't help me to know that other people aren't going where I'm going to make me feel special. Or that God treated somebody else differently than he treated me. That doesn't help me. How is that supposed to help? And then a little light turned on. Last night, my wife was sitting right here in the second row, and I realized my wife loves me different than all the other men in the church, and I'm glad about that. I'm not mad at her for not loving all the other men in the church like she loves me. Does that make sense? I'm not questioning why she doesn't love everyone else in the church the same way. I'm just glad she loves me in a special way, and I'm okay with that. I have loved you, said the Lord, but you keep asking me, what did I do for you? I've done everything for you. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, then where is the honor due me? You see, Israel would talk about God being their father. And he said, you like to throw the title around. Where's your side of this? What's the fifth commandment? Anyone know? Children, honor your father and mother. Yeah? Yeah? Anybody know Deuteronomy 21? Parents, you might want to remind yourself of this. Write it down. Put it on the fridge. If they do not honor you, you stone them to death. <laughs> Excellent. You know what? That's a big new special on Nickelodeon. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's called Stoning Your Children to Death. Okay. God said, let me remind you of something, of the severity of dishonor. Yet you call me father, yet you dishonor my name. According to my law, what should then happen to you? Yet what am I doing? I have not stoned you. I have not abandoned you. I have not yet let you go. I continue to woo you. I continue to chase after you. I am your father, but you do not respect me. If I am your master, where is the respect? Where is the fear that is due me? You call me your master. You don't act like it. Welcome to the American church. Welcome to Bridgeway. I don't live like it either. It is you, O oh priest, 
who show contempt for my name. And now he starts nailing leadership. You're the problem. What, you think the people will go any further than you? You are the problem, priests. You're the one's leadership. You ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Because you place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table, meaning the burnt altar, is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? And they knew very well it was. Leviticus 1, Leviticus 22, Deuteronomy 15 says very clearly it's wrong. Only animals of no defect, perfect, were allowed to be sacrificed. You guys, with my little gimpy leg, you can't sacrifice me. So there, in case you were thinking about it. I'm no good. Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Let me tell you the power of community, both for good and for bad. Can you imagine how this began? At one time there was proper worship, but then what? One guy decided that he was mad at God and it wasn't worth putting his best out anymore. So he's waiting in line. He's got the one-legged cow. It's difficult to pogo, but you're heavy, I understand. It's on a skateboard. He's pulling it along, and he's going to go sacrifice it. Everyone else has their perfect animals in line, but he's got the pogo one leg. As he's wheeling this cow up, everyone is horrified. What are you doing? You can't sacrifice that. That's not good enough for God. And he says, look around you. What has God done for me? And continues to pull a little one leg. Gets up to the altar, throws it on the altar, It says, I'm done. He's got what he needs. And he walked away. Everyone was horrified. But then everyone went home and started thinking about it. Wait a second. I'm giving my best. Maybe that guy's got a point. I mean, look around. Do you see a Messiah? I don't see a Messiah. Why am I wasting all my best? Who cares? He got away with it. Did God strike him dead? Nope. Sure didn't. What do I care? Maybe God doesn't care. Nah. And they began to bring the crippled and diseased and lame animals in mass. But when one or two stand up for righteousness, that too can lead a revolution. You understand what I'm saying? We as Bridgeway many times come to our worship services with nothing. We come with the dregs, with the leftovers. We come completely exhausted. We come unprepared. We come and just sit through and say, hurry up and finish so I can get home. Patriots, Colts, it's the biggest game. Will they decide your eternal future? What you're doing right now is the most important thing you could be doing right now. Yet we consistently leave the best to ourselves and give him the rest. That's unacceptable. And if that is you, like it is me at times, we must change. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, said the Lord, and I will not accept offerings from your hands. What do you think he just said? 
You guys are so messed up. Just stop. Stop. Church is a joke. You're a joke. You're treating me like a joke. Let it go. Walk away. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, I will not be demeaned. You want to demean my offering? You shut down because someone else will. They will lift up my name high and holy. You can't do that? Walk away. Did God have a right to be so angry at them? Yes, he did. They treated his name with contempt. They treated him like a joke. They didn't want to worship him. They saw him as a bad guy and they lived like it. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table it is defiled and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously. Would you underline in your Bibles, if you do that sort of thing, the phrase, what a burden. If you have ever felt that Christianity or walking with God is a burden, you have lost your first love. How many times have you walked to church? Is this a burden? Being here one time a week, an hour and a half or more if I'm preaching, is that a burden to you? Is this too much to ask? Is honoring the Lord after all He's done for you, of lifting up His name because He is majestic, is that a burden to you? Then we're looking at it wrong. We're looking at it wrong. Many times my Christian life gets tiring and exhausting and I wonder, what am I doing wrong? Because Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why do I keep making it complicated? When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Whenever we get angry at God, that means we think He has violated our rights. Whenever we think we have any rights, we're too cocky. When Jesus was here on earth, the only group of people I ever saw him resist, it wasn't the little children, he let them come to him. It wasn't the disciples, it wasn't the sick, it wasn't the needy, it wasn't the poor. It was one group of people, it was the arrogant. Pride will keep you from God. Pride will ruin your worship. Pride will destroy your Christian life. When do we stop thinking about ourselves? Start thinking about God. May it be today. Amen? Amen.